Introducing Mortgage Matters. He has no idea how bad it is out there. He has no idea. A show dedicated to helping you navigate a challenging and ever-changing financial and real estate landscape. The economy continues to face numerous difficulties. Now, your hosts, Dan Podesto and Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. The fact that you're being called upon to help clean up Wall Street's mess is an outrage. Broadcasting outrage. live from the KVEC studios in San Luis Obispo. What economy are you talking about? Talking it's about time about. for Mortgage Matters. All right, everybody, welcome. Good morning. It's Easter weekend. Sandwiched here between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Thanks for tuning in. Dan can't hear yet, so we're... Uh, I can hear, I can hear. I'm what's, just, you what's know... Your, Battery dead? Yeah. Oh, man. It's working fine uh, last week. You got those great headphones. I'll get you a better pair. The trouble is you got to yeah, charge them I'll get up. You, I'll get you a better pair. They need to be charged about every three months or yeah. so. Yeah. And so the day, that it's dead. Yeah. It, and it's hard to remember on a schedule like that. You know, if it was if it was every week, you'd be just fine. Well, it should give me a warning from last week. Last well, week, it should have said, hey, hey buddy, next, you, could, you could probably use a charge. This is your last week of good, good sound here. Yeah. Oh, it's all right. Equipped with backups. There you go. Yeah, I'm ready to go. Charging in no time. That's Perfect. Right. How's the week? It was good. Good week. Good week. Busy week. Always exciting in the mortgage biz. Ooh, yet another backup pair, pair of headphones. Yeah. If only you had more ears, then I wouldn't be friends with you. I probably would. Those are a little more comfortable and a little better quality there, Dan. <laughs> oh, are. wow. Yeah, these. Whew. Are those yeah. Is, is those, that... are the, those are the ones that nobody knows about that I have hidden in my studio. Uh, so there you are. There you are. Are those as good as your beats? No. They're no, not. they're not. But they're <laughs> better than the... Um, Realistics over there, or whatever yeah, those are. At least they cover my ear. Yeah, there I like go. the over mm -hmm. ear. I'm used to the over ear headphones. Yeah, no, they're they're a lot better. Those are the ones that remind me of hey. school. What do you say, Jim? How about a a quick a, charge on those? Helping things? a guy out. Here. Yeah, I'll do that for you. Here you go. Cool. All right. Oh, whoa. All right. Yeah, All right. I'm, I'm just trying to break them even more. I got to admit, this is a pretty rough start to mortgage matters here. Oh, it's exciting. <laughs> But as always, you get a little, little insight into the show. You can tell that it's we're not, not radio. radio. It's we're not, not radio. Guys. It's not pre. It's not <laughs> no, pre-recorded. This it's is not a scripted scanned. show. This is a off the cuff. Nor are we professionals <laughs> at radio. At radio, of course. <laughs> well, heck, uh, let's see here. Might as well just go ahead and open up my notes since we're just getting ready as we go. Yeah. It was a newsy week. There's a little bit Did going on. Did you feel on. that way? Yeah. There's some house news. Yeah, there's some housing data. There's a revision to uh, fourth quarter GDP numbers looking a little better. Um, I, I've been seeing uh, talk about the impending recession here. <laughs> Don't giggle. That's real. There's real articles all over these uh, financial sources here describing the recession that will be hmm it's just months away interesting you're not seeing the same or just not drinking the kool-aid maybe i don't think i'm seeing that nor am i drinking the kool-aid huh 
Go figure. Last week's notes here I found first before this week's notes. And the very first thing on there is the Wells Fargo article about the 23.5% probability of recession in the next six months. Right. That was a real article. By that little company, Wells Fargo. I'm sure you heard of them. Yeah. (laughs) I've heard of them. They're around. All right. Yeah, there's a lot of news. There's a home sales. Did we already say that? Home sales? Yeah, there's some home numbers. Some price index. Yeah. Things like that. It's very exciting. How did rates close this week? They were up and down all week long, it seemed like. You know, it seemed like it was decent going into Thursday. Um, because the bond market was closed yesterday for Good Friday, then you kind of got that four-day week thing in where they put the cooler on you to kind of slow it down, maybe get some people just going out the door instead of sitting tight and working. But I'll tell you what, it was a busy week. There's a lot of phone calls this week. Um, I saw a lot of new loans starting, uh, even still refinance loans. Um, so plenty of activity around the office. Uh, I would have... I would have uh, made good use of yesterday being an open day in the market with some favorable rates. I think it was heading in the right direction, honestly. I'm And I'm looking forward to Monday. I think Monday is actually going to come out swinging and try to make up for what we missed yesterday, and it'll probably be a pretty good week. Yeah. So I mentioned it last week, but so far the beginning of this year started off very streaky as far as mortgage rates go. Um, it looked in December when the Fed announced the rate hike the first rate hike in about eight years it looked as if we were poised for rates to start a gradual increase but instead beginning right first week of january um 2016 we saw a seven week run of declining interest rates down to 12 month lows then immediately following that the last five weeks we saw rates hike back up about about three eighths to half a point um And now it looks like we're poised for a little relief going forward. Now, especially that the Fed has clarified their position, that they're looking at um, at half as many rate hikes this year as they initially expected. They were initially expecting about four, and now it's looking more like two. Um, So that news seems to have calmed or changed in some way or another the bond market. And, um, And so we're seeing rates... I believe we're just at the beginning of of an easing in rates again and, and getting back down to those levels that we saw in January. Yeah, the first part of the year was really rocking. Good low rates. And then we went through a period um, of about five weeks of slow and steady increases. And I didn't actually believe that that last Fed meeting was going to be as influential as it was. When those the way the rates were creeping up for weeks before, I mean that bond yield was getting to two percent, and it felt like we were. Um, it was just all right. I guess that was a fluky beginning of the year. We got some sweet rates to play with for a couple months. I thought it was just naturally going away, and now in retrospect, I think there was a bit of tension in the market to see what was going to happen at that Fed meeting, um, and. There was one vote for increasing rates, fell on deaf ears, and ultimately... Because how many voting members are there generally? Seven? No, there's ten There's are, ten voting members, because ten. I know that that particular vote was a nine-to-one vote. You're right. Um, 
so yeah it, so a, a strong majority <laughs> of people did not want to raise rates Definitely. did not see it as an environment to raise rates in the one dissenting vote who knows was probably just somebody that wanted to uh, not just, let it be unanimous or just be the dissenter <laughs> i have some of them in my life <laughs> you right, know yeah yeah or maybe was even bribed to be the dissenter hey we, 10-0 is like gonna make it look real bad if we can just go 9-1 then at least they'll wonder if somebody in here is enough to hang the jury right i don't know maybe not maybe the fed maybe our our fed board is just uh, better than that. So we saw the 10-year Treasury yield close out the week at 1.9%, which is off the highs that we saw maybe a week or two ago, um, which, like you said, was right pushing up on 2%, 1.99. yeah. And I, I was thinking, oh, here we go. As soon as you get over two, then it's like a whole new range, and everyone gets real excited about that market rally and whatever and so we're firmly back in this range that was described to us by by a few of our um investor partners that we that we trade loans with um that this range that we're currently in is like a one 1.65 to a 1.95 range or so so we're right at the higher end of this range so i kind of expect us to play around here for a little while um moving a little bit lower down towards the bottom of the range um, there are some people out there who believe that we're going to break through 165 and actually go even lower. You know, there's they might they might be the same folks who are predicting Armageddon here, but but I've heard some talk that this 10-year yield could get down as low as one percent. Again, I'm not believing in that until I see it, but um, I think that the range we're in is is where we'll stick for a little while until it becomes a little more apparent that we're in line for another rate hike. And the Fed hasn't taken April off the or maybe we're heading for negative rates. It's possible. I but mean, I'm, I don't recall a time ever hearing so much about negative rates. Yeah. Again, things I was reading this week, um, and, and so this is kind of an interesting thing. Was talking about how negative rates. If you put your money in the bank, literally, it's like you're paying a rent fee to leave your money there, a place to house your money. So, what would happen if that happened here? I mean, what would you do? I'd, and, I'd open up a... I'd be a landlord. Safe deposit for, box? A, a money landlord, yeah. I'm good at keeping money safe. They said in America, the average American has $4,400 in their checking account. Hmm. I thought that was kind of surprising. But so what would happen? Well, I mean, obviously, if they came in and said, hey, you're going to pay 20 basis points a month, uh, what's 20 basis points of 4400 bucks? I mean... 10 is not that much yeah, yeah it's only you know 40 cents or so uh, no 80 cents a dollar <laughs> yeah so it's not that much but the point is they're going to be taking some of your principal as a fee for you keeping your money deposited so what happens is that if you can you'll just go take your money out that sounds like a bunch of a bunch of press that is out of stuff to write and doesn't have good connections for good story for real stories well but so, i mean we've got gdp just revised higher for the fourth quarter I'm gonna realizing though that that there are other countries in the world that currently have negative rates so it's not necessarily just about america but what true. they were what they were specifically saying though is kind of of what the attempt is is the consumer can choose not to put their money in and pay the fee. 
But the big managers, head fund managers, investments, all of that stuff that's parking the money, basically the banks, they then are penalized for hanging on to it. And in a sense, in, in a sense it, it, it forces them into deploying that capital into the economy to choose a risky loan profile over idle money at a cost. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things where it, it in the end, it, it is an attempt to thaw kind of a frozen credit market is to, to say, if you don't lend it, you're going to lose it slowly anyway. You might as well take a stab at lowering your standards and getting that money out. The idea, of course, being that you can then kind of boost the economy up by, um, you know, the loans people are able to take out, maybe to improve or invest in business or even start business, create jobs, that kind of thing. Kind of interesting that that it it's like, hey, things aren't that great. Lower your credit standards and loan some money. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I subscribe to the idea of of keeping rates low because of our other economic allies in the world having low or negative interest rates even, but I don't think we'll go there. It reminds me of the, you know, when when you were acting out as a little kid and someone said, hey, if if Tommy jumps off a bridge, are you going to also? No, we're not going to go negative just because other countries are going negative, but we could stay low. It could be keeping us low because of that. Yeah. We're not going to go jump off the bridge. I doubt it. I never appreciated that. Even when I was a kid, I remember people saying that, you know, that's ridiculous. Well, how high is the bridge? And what did he jump for? I mean, did he land in like a a pillowy bed of cotton candy? As long as we're making things up here. Maybe he landed on like a flying unicorn on the way down and was the best ever decision to jump. You know, there were some some people, I remember getting into discussions about low interest rates and the stock market just being crazy high in spite of what seemed to be a tough job market and things like that. And, you know, there were some theories that I heard that stocks were, do, were doing so well because the companies looked like they were doing so well because they were able to borrow money cheaply. They, were, they were doing a lot of... Um, laying off to, you know, get their house in order, so to speak. They were making sure that they, you know, they were living within their means. They were employing the appropriate amount of people for the amount of work they had. It wasn't this um, exuberant kind of time like we saw just prior. And so all of those corrections that occurred made these companies look, look so much stronger than they really were but all they were really doing was housekeeping stuff it wasn't because there were new ideas and new products and things like that it was just it it was it was a different type of um health that you were seeing in these balance sheets and pnls of companies and that's what led to these higher stock prices plus just a total lack of alternate investments now that money is poised to get a little more expensive to borrow um it's going to change it's going to change the corporate side of things a little bit which which we saw immediately when um you know what we saw about 2000 points run out of the dow um you know down roughly to 16000 now it's recovered a little bit as people get more comfortable with the new normal you know there was that fourth quarter gdp that you referenced a minute ago mm-hmm. uh, i think it was this was the third or fourth reading um, yeah, it didn't seem like it was the last, but I know it's 
It was an improvement from the previous reading, which is at 1%. This one was at 1.4, I believe. Yeah, 1.4 estimate, which isn't too bad for... Oh yeah, and the first estimate was 0.7, so it's gone up a little bit. It's now doubled since the first reading, um, which isn't bad for the fourth quarter, which for a couple years in a row hasn't been that great of a quarter for growth. And estimates for the first quarter are trending around 2%. That would be a huge improvement compared to the past two years. I saw, too, within that number, um, inventories were 78.3 billion rather than the 81.7 billion reported previously, which is a good thing. Specifically, what I was looking for, though, is I was reading yesterday about... Um, Corporate profits were down like 11.5%. And in in one of the articles, ironically, that was one of the things they were sort... Talking about their borrowing costs? Well, sourcing <laughs> as like a one of the, the, the looming recession issues is that actually going... Looking right now is that these... Um, in the fourth quarter there, these big corporations are actually starting to lose money now. And it's sort of starting to tell the real story about the bookkeeping, which is in line with what you're talking about. Um, I didn't, I didn't clip the full article though, because I, you know, I try not to just, I have a predisposition here to like, I pick out like negative things like, Oh, <laughs> I see. I see that there. Um, meh. I don't always want to be negative. I'm looking for the glass half full. <laughs> well, I think the GDP number is a pretty exciting one. We've seen it was last uh, first quarter 2015. Did we have negative GDP growth or did it end up being like a flat reading? I can't remember. I think it was. I, I want to say it ended like flat was the final reading the year before. It wasn't good. I think it was like a, a negative 0.1 or 0.2 percent. So two years in a row, the first quarter of the year, it's been blamed on polar vortex, blamed on more bad weather. Um, this year, we've had more rain than we have in a long time. Or, But here, I guess we don't have weather to blame because the number's actually going to look good, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? So this idea just popped into my head. So at least us on the West Coast, we've been stressing about water and drought issues for so long. Does getting a a good season of rain, does that help the consumer? Does that ease concerns just across the board for for the folks on the western half of the United States who, who've been longing for water and now we've we've got a good rain season and now we're like, ah, oh, things are good. I got my I got a better job. It's raining again. I can go out and spend money. My house recovered its value. I'd like to say that 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 there is some truth to that, but I'm not convinced that people as a whole, especially in an economic sense, care or tune in enough to the rain thing. You don't think someone's buying a new toy for their kid because it's raining? I doubt <laughs> it. I doubt it. Um, yeah, I really doubt it. It's just hard to imagine. I mean, if anything, rain is like associated with a minor chord. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's just a sad thing. It's like, oh man, it's like wet and soggy and there's no sun and you're, there's no sunset. It's like the whole day just like melts into this bleh. I don't know that that gets anybody out spending. 
Although that's a better day to go to a mall, especially yeah, if you had days in a row of that. <laughs> Those are the days. Oh, we got to get out of this house. Where do you go when it's raining? I mean, you go to a mall, go to a movie, go spend some money somewhere. So I could see that, you know, I don't know. Who knows? Then, But there's that other thing, though, like for me. If, if there's like an errand I need to do that involves me going out and now it's raining, it's like, oh, I'll just leave that for another day <laughs> when like my, you know, the odds of a car accident are less. I'm not going to get, you know, wet feet, whatever. Just, just can't seem. It doesn't seem like a coincidence. And then places like Seattle, does it even matter? <laughs> like it just rains there all the time anyway. That yeah. is normal. So maybe we should just do some kind of parent analysis between Seattle's consumer spending, you know, versus Nevada's. <laughs> I don't know. Interesting. Hey, folks, I think it's time for us to take the first commercial break of the show. Um, we're off to a great start. We've got a full two hours with you here. We're live in the studio. We'd love to hear from you. It's always a better show when you ask questions or share comments with us. Um, we love it when it's interactive. 543-8830. 543-8830. We'll be right back with more Mortgage Matters. Don't go anywhere. Keep it locked to Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. Rob. To ask a question, call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Jason Grody with Central Coast Lending. Our loans are not trucked in from some big bank. They're raised right here on the Central Coast. No hormones, no GMOs, no antibiotics. Call today and get your gluten-free mortgage from a caring lender that knows you only accept the best for your family. Just call Central Coast Lending. You buy or refinance a home. Just call Central Coast Lending is an equal housing opportunity real estate broker. California Bureau of Real Estate number 018-39608. NMLS number 328-358. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, in Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. What a state of generosity. Look what my agent got for me. Just by switching to State Farm. A few hundred unexpected bucks. I couldn't ask for more. But now I've got to figure out what I should use it for. A new bike would be radical, but maybe something practical like a pet baboon with one robotic arm. Get to a better state, State Farm. Switch to State Farm and you could save. To find out more in San Luis Obispo, call Agent Susan Rodriguez. You're tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show.
47. <laughs> so now we now we got all into this rain talk and what I mean uh, this <laughs> second half of uh, well this rainy season has it actually been better than average? It's uh, been nor- a little better than normal. Slightly, yeah. yes. So now we need an El, El Nino just to stay normal. Yeah. Well, I thought there's some crazy talk that, oh, um, some of our biggest reservoirs have, have hit normal levels, so we'll ease back on the water restrictions. I'm like, uh, come on, man. Everyone's used 17, to saving water. Let's keep saving 17% in Nascimento. I don't see how that's normal. Well, they were talking about, I think, the two big ones were Oroville and Folsom. Oh, that those those two largest. Um, no, let's not. Yeah, yeah everyone's mm-hmm. doing great. Let's keep yeah, it up. Yeah, we need to keep it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, Brown's the new green. Yeah, yeah, we need to keep it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, silly. Have you right. thought about that? Uh, have you guys heard? Uh, it's a little bit off topic, but have you guys seen Diablo Canyon, the desal plant out there to pump water into the South? Oh, County? sure. I think it'd be a good idea as long as it can be done correctly and. Trying to get more people yeah. mad at us. Yeah. I don't know. We already got some people mad at us last week talking to somebody that builds houses. Mm-hmm. I saw an interesting yeah. read this week, Dan. Tell me what you think about this. Realty Track, you're familiar with them. They're yeah. not new to keeping data and compiling data for consumers like us. Um, the percentage of homes that were bought and sold within 12 months is called a the per- I'm sorry what? Well, the percentage of homes bought and sold in 12 months? And not even necessarily the percentage, but what do you what do you what term you use for a home bought and sold in a short period of time? Flip? Yeah. Okay. Do you think flip has a real negative connotation by the way? Yeah. It seems to, to yeah, me. Yeah, yes and no. It seems to. I mean, in our industry, it definitely does because there's a diff. It's a red flag. But for people who aren't immersed in our industry issues, they might not think so. They might just think it's you so, know, an so opportunity. Realty Track just put, put out this little uh, piece of data here. Um, Flipped homes, which they're defining as bought and sold in less than a 12-month period, 5.5% of all home transactions. That's a lot. Yeah, a 10-year high. (laughs) And it's back on TV now. There's plenty of shows about flipping. You hear some tales about flipping. I see listings all the time here locally all around our county that are obviously flips. Well, the Uh, timing was right. You know, I... I get it. Excuse me. I get it. It's the timing was right. Housing values got so depressed that folks who had cash available could take advantage of the opportunity. You know, I, for one, saw I, we were we were doing this show talking about how 2010 and 11 were going to be looked back at. Oh, my gosh, the golden opportunity to buy real estate. It was peaking at the bottom, you know, it's, it's, it was its low watermark. And we even talked about it on the show that it was due for a rebound, that it had overcorrected oh. down. And the people who had the cash to be able to take advantage of it are the ones flipping. And we talked at length about this, but well, and you'd be better off if you held for more than 12 months during that period. 
if you could have bought and held for two to three years out of there oh, for sure and and that clock's still running isn't it i mean we're still I seeing think now is good <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can probably sell right now right um but you'd you'd have done very well for yourself sure time and time and time again you know especially as we talked you remember you know back in 2008 9 10 11 12 um people how will we know when things are getting better? How will we know when it's when when it's safe to re-enter this market? And I always said, as a, as a son of a builder, when we're building homes, and as sort of the precursor to that, when banks are offering construction loans, that's when it's like really safe to say that we're really on the mend, uh, because for a while there. You could build a new home and and it couldn't even sell, scrap the labor. <laughs> that was your donation for giving a whack at this. You couldn't even sell a new home for what the materials involved in the home were. Mm -hmm. These houses were selling for fraction of their replacement value. I mean, it, you, it was unbelievable how, what a discount the homes were at during that era um, so yeah, it's not much of a surprise that flipping has gotten a pretty good share of market again. I suspect it probably begins cooling down at some point here. Um, you know, it, I would think so. Like Warren Buffett, even they, the really smart economists, guys that understand markets watch and say, Hey, when it starts getting too mainstream where they're making TV shows about yeah. it. And you know, it's one of those things where you see something taking an unusually large portion of the attention in a segment. That's a pretty good indication that you should steer clear of that. Um, that number struck me as such. I mean, the fact that 5.5% of all homes were just speculative flips is kind of wild. Yeah, that is. I'm I'm surprised even in this environment that it's that high of a percentage. Yeah. Maybe we should get into flipping homes. <laughs> <laughs> now that it's hit mainstream media, there's TV shows about it. Let's jump in now. I love being late to parties, man. <laughs> oh boy. Why not? Yeah. Let's see. There was a lot of... Um... Think back to that bubble, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Back in 2003. Oh, dude. They were calling for it in 2003, 2004, 2005. Intelligent people were closing up shop and heading to the hills. Oh, man. They lost money. 2005 was good. 2006 was better. 2007, we were at the peak. Those chumps that got out two or three years early... Left so much money on the table. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> if you only knew that you were good to go until about June of 07, you could have just stayed in that chair, you know, just collecting your money. Ah. I thought that was kind of cool last week when we had Pam Atkinson on from yeah. um, Coastal Community. Uh-huh. Talking about how they sort of sold and hunkered down and got out of the residential game in like right in that era almost perfect timing yeah um, it was like 2005 to 2011 it's nice to hear those stories yeah. i remember i had a guy come into my office he was actually a listener of the show he came into my office in like 2009 or something and uh I had a, I had said on the radio, I want to meet the guy that just like 
cashed in the real estate portfolio and became a tenant for a few years. And this dude walked in like that. It was totally like, oh, yeah, I, I was that guy. 2005, I just felt it. 2006, I sold everything and I became a renter. And uh, everything just, you know, went to heck the way it did. And then there he was like, okay, back to like, you know, wish I could buy back my old houses at these new rates, but instead I'm just going to have to buy what I could get. And I was like, man, good for you. Yeah. Awesome. One in, one in millions, it seems, you know. Now there's books made about guys that saw that decomposition in the market or something, but they were pretty rare, weren't they? Yeah, they were. It's yeah. just, yeah, I, I think that. We had spent years <laughs> saying what was coming. We knew what was coming. We definitely saw the delinquency rates rising. One of my functions at the company we worked for was tracking down the non-payers and trying to convince them they should be paying their mortgage. And that proved to be a, a pretty <laughs> fruitless effort. Um, but yeah, it was, it was clear that it was getting a little out of control. And I do recall a couple conversations with you about... Uh, this is becoming a problem. Does this look like a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, I remember specifically we brought on a new investor. We got some new account executives. We had some new um, loan officer shops sending in business. And, and one guy in particular from the Bay Area was a pretty sharp guy. And he had kind of figured out where... It, this this particular niche was and it was a essentially 100% financing for a guy with no job, no income, no credit, no assets, um no down payment, no citizenship. I mean, it was, we look at this thing we're like, "Oh gosh." I guess I and mean then, it, it meets <laughs> guidelines. And remember when you'd get investor guidelines that would be like 7 pages long or something? Yeah. Um you guys left an awful lot out when you were talking about how you wanted credit risk evaluated for the product you wanted to buy. But hey, who am I to judge? Yeah. And then Deutsche Bank walked in the door and said, well, we've got a program that's better than that. Yeah, <laughs> We'll do we basically, one day out of bankruptcy or foreclosure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You'll loan to the guy who just foreclosed, uh, who had a house foreclosed just yesterday? Just yesterday in this market. Wow. <laughs> this market wow <laughs> appreciation's been going off at like you know 15 25 35 percent in some cases and if you let one go yesterday at that rate we're we're gonna we'll be the guy in line to give you another one and so you kind of had to go what are the circumstances which um somebody loses a home to foreclosure like that straw buyer <laughs> <laughs> you you just tried to be a straw buyer and it didn't work out. Try it again. Well, you know, they Or buy yourself the one. The builder now. got paid off and so the buyer no longer needs to pay the mortgage. The fake buyer. I was funny. I watched Or the- or you just have a house that the the uh, mortgage payments like, you know, 4 <laughs> grand a month and the rent's 4 grand a month cuz it's a sweet house, okay? But you don't like you you at day you're cutting hair. Okay? The something happens, there's a disagreement with the tenant. The tenant doesn't pay the rent. You can't pay the mortgage. The thing goes wrong. 
and and then the house goes through foreclosure the tenants evicted by the new owner and it all just like it goes through this it cleanses itself and you're like man if that tenant had just made the rent i would have been able to make the mortgage so then it's like knock knock hey deutsche bank listen I yeah, I just had a foreclosure yesterday, but it was because a tenant didn't pay the rent and if if they just had, you know, I'd have kept paying you. So let me get another one. Yeah. 100% financing. Let me just get in fact, if you want to get me two or three of them, I'll do better at getting good tenants this time, I promise. I watched The Big Short last night, which is a really good movie. Um, did a good job of could it's it's a complicated thing. What what happened, what led to the housing downturn, but they had this one scene where some guys out doing like a, a survey for a bank going door to door and knocking on the home of, of homeowners who are 90 days late on their loan and trying to figure out what's going on. Just doing door to door survey. I can picture it now. And he's, he's like, like s- sliding between Mercedes in the driveway. Knocks as he's on like, the door of a house of a pretty um, abandoned neighborhood and guy opens the door. He's a renter. And he says, is some really odd name here? And he's like, why are you looking for my landlord's dog? <laughs> Uh, your landlord's dog is on the loan application. (laughs) That's the kind of stuff that was going on. Yeah, Yeah. why not? And it was like, it was right before technology got very good too. Like today, for example, this week I have a loan that I'm doing for a friend of mine and we ran a fraud report because that's a part of every transaction now. So you take the fraud report and it, it runs John Doe. And it comes back with, hey, heads up, here's some things we know about John Doe. And, I mean, this thing is digging up interest in timeshares, part of a a fractional interest in a trust from a grandmother's estate, um, digging out just, I mean. It's analyzing the distance from work to home. It's analyzing, you know, all kinds of different things. It searches every database that's available. because certain databases focus on, they focus on different things. So it's searching all of them. And how much does that cost? It's a like a $15 report or $25 report. So first of all, its strength comes from the databases that it's able to draw from. The accessibility and affordability of that report is game changing. Oh, yeah. Back in those days, you know, in the early 2000s when I was underwriting, you know, it, and it'd be a funny thing. I'd be underwriting a loan. Like, we'd get we'd get 10 loans from a shop in Colorado, okay? It's like, okay, interesting. This guy signed up last week, and now he sent us this whole pipeline. That's a weird thing. We start going through it and go, hey, here's an LLC. So then I'd have to go to the Secretary of State, try to find – and some of these, like Colorado, their records were terrible. But so start – Where's the, and sometimes all all I could get was the mailing address. The agent for services for this company was at this address. And then I'd be in the next file and I'd see that address and go, hey, wait, that those people, which appear to be on two different loans, completely like unrelated, just coming from the same loan company, they appear to have a relationship. And then you dig a little bit farther in and find out that the like the real estate agent is, you know, brother-in-law was the appraiser. And then these like four little condoed things or whatever they did over here. And it's like, oh my gosh. But somebody has to really be paying close attention and care and keep looking for why something doesn't smell right. Um 
Today, the fraud reports do that for you. If it ever got going where we were really like you just couldn't put your finger on it, you knew it didn't add up, but you couldn't figure it out. We had LexisNexis. Yeah. But that was an expensive service. Yeah, it was like two hundred dollars a pull, and that was if you just like went in at a surface level. If you started clicking extra stuff, where you could, I mean, you could see somebody's airplane registration and or their boat CF numbers, you could get into their dental records. But at first of all, it was scary because I had a username and password, and was like told specifically by the people that that gave it to us, like you're kind of getting the whole thing. And if you don't have an authorized use, so you could be committing a crime to be looking at certain things. So be really careful and know that your position is defensible for what you go in and click. That stuff was freaky. So today, you know, and every now and again, we'll get somebody that comes in where they um, they really want to buy a house next to Cal Poly for their kid because like their kid's going to Cal Poly and he's got a really good group of friends and they're going to, they're going to be able to rent this house altogether, right. For cheaper than what the mortgage is going to be. So the dad walks in and says, yeah, I'm going to, I want to buy a, I want to buy this house and say, well, okay. By definition, that's an investment property. And in the investment property, you're going to need to put down, X amount of dollars and the interest rate and closing costs reflect the risk of an investment property. Say, so, well, I want, I heard I could do this as a second home. I want to do it as a vacation home. And you're like, no, you can't, you can't really justify it. It's not the rules. And the people go, well, who's going to know, you know, it's just going to be my kid. And then he's going to rent some bedrooms. It's going to be off the radar. And I'm like, you don't understand who knows what nowadays. These reports are pretty darn good. They tell us who people are associated with and why. They'll tell us that your cell phone bill's getting delivered to so and so's house. I mean, we see so much about who's living where and what utilities are on and you know who's associating with who and and the databases that get this stuff together it's it's mind-blowing police get called because of a loud party at the house because of college students <laughs> yeah or the kid or one of the kids yeah. in the house yeah. uh-huh. goes over sure. this is a real thing one of the kids in the house needs a new apple tv so he goes uh-huh. to best buy and best buy says yeah. yeah we'll get you an apple tv fill out yeah. this credit application and he says i live at 200 slack yeah and that thing now goes into the database as somebody today on uh-huh. Saturday just said they live at Slack. And that's the house yeah. that two months ago you swore was a vacation home. This kid, no matter who he is, mm-hmm. you're breaking the deed of trust now. And there's an acceleration clause. I mean, if they want to, they can come after you in a real big way. So we're always, I mean, first of all, that we try to everything in the company that we have an opportunity to influence. We want to be above board anyway. Oftentimes these consumers don't allow us to help protect them. Like they come in, they go to one lender and they're told, Oh no, you're going to have to do this. And they go, well, if I hadn't have said that, Hmm. then it would be, you know, then, Mm -hmm. then it would have been fine. So they cancel with one lender. Then they walk through our door And again, all the red flags are going off because now they know words and terms and things that they wouldn't know if it just wasn't such a big deal. And so then you're going, hey, hang on, bud. 
I get it. Like, I understand what you're doing and I know why you're here, but let me help you save yourself because I've seen this happen. I've seen people get popped by one of those fraud reports or something. And all of a sudden they're being asked to pay back a $400,000 loan in seven days. We're, kinda, we're, go oh, ahead. It kind of brings to my, my, mind too, um, those stupid students that we had last year that were on, on the, roof. the roof of the garage yeah. that collapsed. I try explaining that as must, being your vacation. Cal Poly home. must be a pretty <laughs> yeah. easy school to get into. Yeah. Huh? yeah. And uh-huh. probably, I mean, you wouldn't even think it was an engineering based school. Yeah. <laughs> when you see that yeah. many people, it was on a liberal arts roof. party yeah. <laughs> on a rooftop. Yeah. Made national news. Yeah. Um, They're well, lucky that there wasn't like mass casualties in that. Yeah. But how could you? Th- I'm going to get onto this roof with my like 300 best friends. Along yeah. the lines of of the fraud report, digging up stuff, we are working with a client actively engaged in a purchase transaction, and they had a foreclosure about six or seven years ago, and they it, but it wasn't appearing on their credit report. Right. So they got somehow their agent, their real estate agent, was able to pull a credit report on them when they were looking for a home, and they saw that there, this wasn't on the credit report. So they collectively decided that we don't need to tell anyone because why? It's not showing up, so why let that cat out of the bag and potentially foul up a great purchase deal? Well, we pull a fraud report and it does show up. And this this is something that's done on every loan. It's required on every loan. Right. So whatever you think you can hide and get away with, it's just not possible anymore with all the information that's out there and that we have access to. You, you just can't hide those kinds of issues anymore. Yeah. And so when we go full circle back to this idea that we're potentially in line for some, I don't know, I know it's just being described as maybe a recession, but if there are some people who believe, oh, that could mean another collapse of this overheated housing industry and things like that, it's just a totally different environment. I had to explain this to someone this week. It's a totally different lending environment that's it's just not going to go down the same way. Even if the economy slows down, you're not going to see rampant foreclosure and all this because there's too much emphasis now placed in lending on proving that people can afford these loans. That was something that was not um, not emphasized back in the mid-2000s. Well, yeah, and and, um, I'm sure you remember this, Dan, but when I was living in Los Osos, when we were working at um, Cameron, I had a... uh, I had an opportunity to buy my neighbor's house. It was a friend of ours. He lived two doors down. And I was living two doors up on 16th Street in a house that I rented through a property management company for $1,600 a month. And, um, yeah, whatever. It was, it was the deal. I think actually uh, the fair market deal. I was a three-bedroom, you know, 1,200-square-foot place in Osos. These guys two doors down, they wanted to move into something bigger, better, nicer. They wanted to sell me their house for $535,000. And they wanted to do it without real estate agents. But, you know, I did home loans for a living. And so I looked at the thing and said, man, if I if I do this at these rates, you know, I'll, what's going to happen with the program unless I do like – interest only, which only got me so close, or a negatively amortizing loan, the mortgage payment on this is like $3,500 a month. So 
here I am two doors over renting the model match house for 1600 bucks a month being offered the opportunity to buy this home that was more than twice the monthly cost. I know you get some tax write-offs for buying a house, but it's not enough to um, double justify, you know, justify doubling your, your housing expense. That was the story then. Okay. But now let's look today. If you want to go rent that house in Los Osos today, um, first of all, it's, it's probably close to that again, back to the 535 number. Um, the debt service on that house at 535 is pretty close to 3,500 bucks a month on 30 year fix with, you know, some down payment, mortgage insurance, tax insurance. That's the whole thing in there. Go rent that house today. Um, if you can get that house to rent that house, I mean, you're talking probably 22, 23, $2,500 a month. So it's a lot closer that that disparity is so much less Um, I think that's another big reason why we probably won't see people lose total confidence in real estate the way they did, um, in that era, you know, eight years ago where the rental market today justifies quite a bit of what the home values are. And I don't see the the loans aren't poised to adjust like they were. That was one of the biggest problems was they were fine for the teaser period being. Yeah. But once they got past that teaser period or trouble on the horizon, once they had to re recast when they hit their max negative amortization cap, right. Then all of a sudden it got completely unaffordable. So yeah, there's not a lot of reason to believe that those things are probably even possible anymore. Now, is there going to be a correction in price? Yeah, at some point for sure. Um, and it and it comes down to probably a little bit of shift in perception, right? And I think there's just something to be said about too many months or years in a row of of price appreciation causes people to start, you know, looking on like, huh. Well, I mean, it can't go up forever and I don't want to buy and lose. And, you know, I mean, there was some stats this week about um, existing home sales. Well, before you go there, just I've I've been thinking about this issue for a while. And when you look back at home prices, you see periods of increase. You, you do see periods of decline. You know, they're they're not very frequent. A couple big ones like the 30s and then the O five sevens, whatever the aughts, um, you see big crashes, but for the most part, you see it steadily going up and then you see periods of plateau. And I feel like we're more like, I, I think plateau is the more likely scenario here because you still have a supply issue. So even when rates, when the cost of borrowing gets more expensive and, and, you know, people just start to, think a little more you know it's not as hasty of a decision because things aren't moving as fast um, as the supply starts to catch up a little bit i still think there's enough demand that's going to keep values there but you might just start to see the appreciation flatten i i feel like we're poised for a plateau more than anything well i was talking to um one of the agents this week in town real estate agent was telling me that san Luis proper typically has like 50 active listings in the 50s and has for a pretty long time. That's a pretty normal range under um, suggesting like right now there's like 98 or something. 
So there's a lot more listings right now. Um, inventory is growing. And <clears throat> yeah, I do. I have a, a bunch of housing stats and facts, I guess, to get through. Um, I don't know that I want to dive completely into that with four minutes left in the hour. Um, but bottom line is people are watchful right now. People are wondering if those things can repeat themselves. And when you don't have that specialized knowledge of, of what's been going on within the industry, it's easy to say, oh, that could happen again. But could it, though? Because back it, then... It could if you had the same kind of trading instruments that really led and fueled the crash. And we Not don't only today. that, though. Yeah, all of that is true. It's so true. But appraisals in 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, even on the way down in 2000, you know, 8, 9, 10, you, would, you had your appraiser. You could call up and go, okay... Here's the deal. I'm I'm helping my buddy Dan and he's he's on the cusp, you know, he's got this interest only loan and it's going to adjust and if we can refi him today, this house needs to be worth 430,000 bucks. And the appraiser would him and haw and oh, all right, you know, see what I can do and you know, today none of that stuff exists anymore. You're not pushing appraisals. You're not calling in favors you're not turning a blind eye to certain details people aren't getting away with fraud all of these things so much of it has been cleansed that not only is the actual security instruments that are being used to loan people money and then be securitized and traded those are totally clean safe um, but the transactions themselves borrowers are getting in for a, a fixed rate predictable payment under um, well-vetted collateral where we totally understand what the value is of the collateral. Um, there's so much about the transaction now with disclosures and everything that we're, we've never operated at a point ever in history of confidence that the buyer is the buyer. The transaction is arm's length and pure. The documentation is accurate and honest and would hold up. Um, the loan products being used are fixed, determinable, you know, all these things that we know exactly what's going into it out of all parts. So we've never once in history been at a time when it was so well contained. I mean, and maybe even to a fault, people say things are a little more strict now than they probably should be. Um, but that means it's like never before, right? Guys, we got to take the top of the hour commercial break here. We'll be back in a, oh, a few minutes with a whole other hour of Mortgage Matters and hope you'll stick with us. Second hour of Mortgage Matters. Music from the Big Short for you. Is it? Yeah. Huh. Sweet Child of Mine, Guns N' Roses. I don't remember this. this 
say it's in it. I haven't seen it yet, so. Uh, we would love to hear from you. This second hour, we're opening up the mic, or the, I guess the phone lines. The mics are already open. Um, but you can find your way to a microphone by way of a, <laughs> sure. phone, of, a, of a phone. Yeah, there's a there's a great microphone on every phone. 543-8830. 543-8830. Ask your question live on the air or whisper it to Jim and he'll ask it for you. Um, I had one little stat here that I thought would would be a nice transition from uh, what we were talking about last hour with some of the the lending environment that led to um, the mid 2000s housing crash and and today where there's you know not too much talk but there's some out there who think that housing's overheated um, and one of the one of the big reasons is that we've seen home price appreciation really get carried away again not to the same extent necessarily but it's been a good three or four five years now of home price increases. Some of it's just recovering an overcorrection downward. Um, but I have a little story here. It says home prices are rising faster than wages in most of the United States, which is really making home ownership difficult for the average American. We definitely see that here um, with the lack of affordable housing around the San Luis County area. Um, Let's see here. Home prices are less affordable than they've ever been historically in 9% of the U.S. housing market. Um, in spite of this, though, home prices are still more affordable than during the peak of the housing bubble in 2006. In the first quarter of 2016, in the first quarter of 2016, the average wage earner needed to spend a third of their income on monthly mortgage payments oh. compared to 2006 when the average wage earner needed to spend half of their monthly income on their housing payment. So even though home prices are increasing much faster than wages, it's not to the extreme that it was back right before the housing crash. Interesting. Seem like people made a lot more money back then. Which is crazy to think that they were spending half of it on on mortgages. And a lot of it was just because there was a lot of no income verification going on back then. And today it's quite the opposite. You know, we've when a borrower is, you know, retired, receiving a pension, receiving social security, we need to verify receipt of that fixed income. I mean, this is income that you like you can't i don't think you can opt out of social security your pension i mean if you get it you get it and we have to prove receipt of it in two different ways according to fannie mae guidelines we have to prove it with a pay stub or an award letter and then we also have to prove it with a 1099 or a tax return or a bank statement that shows a direct deposit into your account so it's a completely different environment um, today when it comes to income verification. And that's because of the rule from Dodd-Frank called ability to repay, the ATR guidelines. It's a big part of every loan transaction. Um, it's why we have borrowers sign a 4506 um, form, form 4506T. It allows us to pull the tax transcripts 
from the IRS so that we can match them up to your tax return and make sure that there was no uh, no whiteout work, handiwork on your part when you submit a tax return. Um, so it's a and spending a third of your income is right in line with what the the government mandated when they were doing loan modifications. They deemed thirty one percent debt to income ratio as an appropriate amount of your gross income to be spending on housing that it shouldn't exceed that. I was recently with Jeff Eccles and we were we were at one of the housing you know committee things that we're doing and we started talking about that and um, in fact I wanted to engage you at some point because you're so much better at the report aspect of analyzing the business than I am but kind of curious what the average closed loan debt to income ratio is within the company. Um, one of the problems I find is that there, you know, there's, ah, do you guys always feel like there's kind of a separation between the lawmakers and the way it really works? <laughs> like, like yeah, they, okay. they come yeah, in and they sure. say something like, yeah. oh, start talking about your industry. Right. And they, mm. Who knows what report they were briefed on to come to their conclusions. <laughs> but you're like, man, you should have talked to somebody that does this for a living. Because one of the issues here, um, oh, it's kind of a complicated thing, but there's sort of a barbell effect that's happening in some of these new housing developments, right? Where the city mandates that you have so much of the project be affordable housing. They come up with those metrics based off of published income criteria for low, you know, very low, extremely low, whatever the all of these things are. And then they crunch out how many units of this house complex need to be sold to people that fit the very low income range based on a debt to income ratio of 27 or 31 percent. That sets the purchase price then for that home. Now, you know, I I don't want to point fingers here, but you know, where do you who do you think pays for in that overall project of, you know, let's say it's 25 new homes and five of them are forced to be sold at the very low income level to a debt to income ratio that's 31%. So these these units are going to be sold for $310,000. Have to. Now, the issue of the other 21 units, what are those going to sell for? Well, they're going to get the the difference in the fair market value of those units. It's going to get added by the, the 21 homes. Right. <laughs> yeah. So what happens it's like is subsidized. So this is what we're calling the barbell. <laughs> yeah. Is that the sure the affordable homes are staying affordable, the expensive, you know, the fair market homes are going up more in value. And so what happens is you're again, you're hurting that middle class, those average people. Can you afford to pay the premium for the brand new house at the fair market rate that pays the ticket for the affordable home down on the end? You can? Great. What color would you like your blinds? That other guy that, that's just looking for workforce housing gets squeezed more in the middle again. Right? Right. So going back to it, I told Jeff, hey, well, one of the breakdowns in the logic here is that when you take that very low income guy, debt to income ratio is always just a percentage of income. 
So it's the, yeah, you're dealing with lower income, so you're lower potential debt. But when you when you set the value of these homes based on a 27 or 31 percent maximum debt to income ratio, where FHA will go to 55, so first time home buyers that um, don't qualify for that very low one, they they could be double that debt to income ratio of the 27 percent ratio that's sometimes used. So it's one of those things where. Like I said, the the what the legislators are are doing doesn't quite match what's going on in the real world, and it led me to wonder, in in all of this, um, all of our loan history as a company, what's the average debt to income ratio for a client? Is it twenty seven? Is it thirty one? Is it in line with the national standards? I'm gonna I'm gonna do some investigation on that and report back. So what I did for them, for sake of this discussion, you know, because I'm the lender in the group, so I'm the, I'm supposed to be bringing that to the table. All I said was, hey, if you looked at purchase power by debt to income ratio, it's pretty remarkable the difference between twenty seven and and forty forty five or fifty. Oh yeah, which then radically change what the affordable housing would be, which, by the way, are usually pretty difficult to sell. I know Pam last week said they always do, but they're difficult to sell because they're marketed to a very small segment of the population that has income, um, no other debt, and can qualify within these ranges. Um, so anyway, kind of a, a whole interesting thing about that the way that these things are analyzed just to give you an idea the very low income standard for a four-person household is thirty-eight thousand five hundred and fifty um dollars annually so roughly thirty nine thousand dollars less than thirty nine thousand dollars per year for a four-person household puts you in the very low income for the extremely low income category it would be something less than twenty five thousand dollars Hey, we've got Pete calling from San Luis Obispo. I bet this is Pete from last week, is it not? Could be. Could be. <laughs> hey, Pete, might welcome back. Morning, might not. <laughs> morning, Pete. But yeah, I have some more socialist rhetoric to throw out. All right, let's hear uh, it. A recent talk about minimum wage, raising it to 15 bucks yes. an hour across the land. High-powered CEOs are complaining, saying that we'll just have to lay off people because profit margins, blah, 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 percentages... And I'm thinking, no, 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 you got it all wrong. You take less money. You don't lay people off. You take less money. You don't take 20 million homes. And that relates to what you're talking about. Yeah, kind of. I'll, I'll I tell think you. I the uh, development, housing development market is more lucrative than selling drugs. And I say, let the developers take less home. Don't have the middle class guy subsidize the the uh, fallacy of low-cost housing. I don't know anybody who can but then you'd afford have to so-called affordable housing. You'd have to just cap what they could sell even the the fair market homes at. Sure. Well, I... They make too much money. I agree with you when it comes to... Um, certain corporations i think housing it doesn't really apply because i can't think of anyone on the on the job housing that's making less than 15 bucks an hour maybe the guy who's cleaning up the trash but for the most part most people in construction are making more so it's not really going to impact that industry but i do hear your point in other well, aspects well look, when you're, you're talking going, about it brings up a question i didn't get to ask last week about woman who works for grossman yes i was going to ask her do any of the people 
who work on any of your projects, can they afford to buy any of your homes? Hmm. It's a good question. There's something wrong here, drastically wrong, and we need a, a full societal look at this problem of housing, wages, I, affordability. Pete, I, I couldn't agree with you more that when I see CEOs making $20 million a year or $50 million a year or something, yep. I'm kind of like, that's ridiculous and absurd. And I, I don't know mm -hmm. what the answer is there, except for I just, mm -hmm. I, it seems crazy to me. In terms mm -hmm. of the 15 bucks an hour thing, though, I, I got to just tell you this anecdotally um, and, you know, do with the info what you will. But a few years ago, um, I did a business plan with my wife over the idea of starting a frozen yogurt shop in Los Osos. We were living in Los Osos. There's no frozen yogurt in Los Osos or Morro Bay. Is there yet, Dan? I don't think there really is. Oh, there is in Morro Bay. Is there one now? Yes. So point being, it seems like a good place to have it. We've Our kids are in there, you know, approaching their teenage years. So it could be an opportunity for them to have, you know, some part-time work or for their friends or whatever. And um, seems like low overhead, low investment. Right. You, you know. can get out of work with comp. I put your kids to work. Cool. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. But interestingly enough, when you're when you start into that, you know, so you got to buy the machines and the ingredients and pay the rent and all that. The the biggest overhead in the company becomes the labor. So you project out your labor cost at whatever the wage might be. You know, if you want to pay eight, nine, ten bucks an hour. If you work in it yourself and put in quite a bit of, um, you know, probably pro bono time by the time all said and done, that's a business that can make a couple $3,000 a month, at least part of that profit being because you're there working to keep the labor costs down. When you go and re-crunch those numbers at 15 bucks an hour mandatory, the only choices are A, you close the business, or B, you raise the price of yogurt. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? I would rather pay more for yogurt so your people can have a living wage. Uh, if it comes just, to that. But, just but food for we're thought. We're talking about big, big companies. Yeah, and you know, you know Walmart, we were, McDonald's, those people aren't working there. They're we were billions of dollars. They can take less home and pay their people a living wage yeah at some point in the last decade or two it wasn't enough just to be extremely powerful in running a corporation they had to be they were already wealthy already powerful mm -hmm. but they weren't now they it was like who could out wealth the other guy who could have the bigger yacht that looks like a spaceship and well come on we celebrate <laughs> that though well yeah and it's something happened in the last few years and and i've i've read some pretty interesting things on that that it used to be a source of pride for companies to be able to have people working there have a strong corporation be able to pay them good wages and and the disparity wasn't so great and somewhere that that value got lost uh-huh and that, we need to get it back, and, and we can bring it right down to our local government developers and people who need housing. Maybe, we, maybe Grossman ought to come in with his tax return. Let's see what he makes. <laughs> Only okay. when he runs for All president. All guys. <laughs> and prove me wrong. I say they're making a killing, and they should eat it on the low-income housing. Well, it's not even low. You call it affordable, which is a misnomer. <laughs> um, 
it's less. Yeah. What, what's a, he's selling, he built a bunch of trash in my neighborhood, and they're all going for 700000 or more and up. Yeah, it depends on the neighborhood. Affordable? 400 500 yeah, it depends on the on the area. I think they said their Santa Maria tracks were in the three hundreds, so it does yeah. you know depend crime a little ridden, bit on the cost of dirt. Crime ribbon, ridden crappy towns. Three hundred thousand. I couldn't afford a house like that, probably. Yeah. But and so you know what? What's happening in our society? If we call, if you're broke and all, all you can afford is a three hundred thousand dollar house, I think the majority of people would go, "Are you crazy? Three hundred thousand bucks?" Well, maybe twenty years ago they were ninety. Yeah, That's, I think greed is driving that. The vicious capitalistic supply and demand rule, stuff like that. Anyway, it's not your fault or mine or even Grossman's, but we're all part of it. Yep. And I think we should address this problem and go, we cannot, this is not sustainable, this kind of a market. Yeah, I think you bring up some very valid points, Pete, and we do appreciate so, you calling in and sharing those with us here on the air. Thank you for your time. All right, Pete, we'll have a great weekend. Um, if anyone else would like to chime in, you can do so at 543-8830, 543-8830. Found some analysis on that article, by the way. Uh, well, not, I shouldn't call it an article. This piece I wrote for um, Jeff. Okay. I sent him the email after I went through and figured out what the differences were. So the first group of people that we looked at were people that make $54,000 a year. That should be in line with one of your numbers over there. That would be, I'm looking, it looks like it could be the low income, which is like a middle tier of yeah. low income for a three-person household. Yep. Yeah. So that person um, could qualify for, and, and correct me, by the way, if you disagree with anything I say right now. This is just my interpretation of underwriting guidelines. That person would qualify for a Fannie Mae 30-year fixed, 3% down payment, with mortgage insurance, taxes and insurance all rolled in um, at $305,000. That's what you could afford. Um, that is the maximum debt to income limit as um, Fannie Mae will allow at 45%. A three, the home price would be three hundred thousand, roughly. Three oh five, yeah. On this chart, which I'm getting right off of Slow County's website, it's the um, what's the document called? Affordable Housing Standards. It shows the income limits as well as the maximum sales prices. It shows for that same three person household low income category that was roughly the fifty four thousand max income um, that the maximum sales price that family could afford is one hundred and ninety one thousand. Right. Herein lies the point is that taking it to that maximum debt to income ratio of 45 percent um, where I mean, we regularly fund people right to that limit, um, you know, obviously not not just by design or desire, but that's just what it takes to qualify um, the when you go back and look at a 31 percent debt to income ratio for that same three-person, $54,000 a year household, um, at 31% debt-to-income ratio, the maximum purchase price would be reduced to $210,000. Yeah, that's cool. So you can yeah, see that so I, I the, 
what the government We're deems normal. that acceptable ratio to be or that high water maximum ratio to be versus what's really available to you if you're just Joe the plumber coming in for a loan. It has a difference of $100,000 in purchase price, which is in this case representing 33% difference of opinion of value. Um, it's, it's just kind of an interesting, it's an interesting thing to see. And again, that's why I'm curious. What's the norm? I know, I, so uh, I know what the maximums are and I know what the fed thinks we should be at, but what is happening in slow County? It's interesting that the government sets these standards for the affordable housing, yet they're also in control of Fannie and Freddie. <laughs> right. And they have different standards for each. They, and dude, how crazy go with me down this road just three steps how crazy would the housing market change in the united states if the feds changed fannie and freddie down to a 31 percent debt to income ratio lot, maximum a lot less people would be able to afford to own a home or <laughs> or home prices would go down plummet. to attract buyers so why then is there this disparity between what the fed mandates for some cases but then and then sets as the standard for others. It's an interesting question. We've got uh, we've got Steve calling from San Luis Obispo. Hey, hi guys, enjoy your show. Right. Um, Thank you. Hey, uh, you. You know, Pete called in a little bit ago talking about housing prices. Yes. Well, I'm a I'm a contractor here in San Luis. You know, your building permits on a single family home are what in the range of a hundred thousand dollars. So. You know, if you're looking at a $400,000 home, 25% of the cost is building permits, sewer, sewer hookups, things like that. Uh-huh. Okay. So those are all environmental factors that environmentalists like Pete have pushed over the years that just drive the cost up. So, um, you know, there's there's some responsibility here that often gets ignored. Do you have any ideas, Steve, on what... What a what a historical norm for for permit fees and that, that kind of stuff would be as a percentage of total sales. Do you have any idea? I also want to know yeah. what the percentage, Actually, by the way, of profit is to the builder. Yeah, exactly. You know, let's let's see a breakdown, some accurate numbers here, because being in the trades, I'm a painting contractor, but nevertheless, um, you know, there's fixed costs. So a lot of these costs are pretty staggering, and especially in the government permit. Um, I think you guys might have a little better handle on that, but um, I think that's a, a valid discussion to have. Definitely. I, I agree with you. It's something we hear a lot um, is the, the cost of, of well, the and permits. Well, at, at the, the same time, though, I mean, just in, in by the way, I, I, I'm not trying to pile on to one side of the argument or another, but like I said, I grew up the son of a builder. So concerned with the price of the home? Um the recipe of what goes into the home, part of that is labor. So if you're out of one side, you're pushing for higher wages, especially for labor wages. The guy that's like manning the shovel or moving the trash pile, loading the trash trailer, that guy that's making minimum wage, if you want to give him a 35% raise, you got to expect that's going to translate somewhere into the project itself. But yeah, those yeah, environmental costs, yeah, absolutely. The, the, you know, title 32 is that's what they're called, right? With the, all the energy efficiency, 
um, demands, but also the taxes that going into paint and lumber and different building materials now. It's like at every turn, each of those things have also added to the cost. And and I'll just say it would be really interesting to have a builder on that wants to lay the cards on the table about some of the profit that's made. But I think by the time you get through your insurance your warranties, new new home warranties are the real deal now because of the lawsuits that have happened over defects in building, um, workman's comp, all of these different things that drive up the cost before you get to permits and before you get into you know everything that just finally totals the whole thing up. These builders that are really putting their head in the vice to come out and bring a project to market and and believe me they go bankrupt they lose everything they they try to create jobs they do they do their best and oftentimes fail um they take these projects on margins in hopes of making 10 or 15 or 20 percent so when you're talking about an environment where the fees themselves for planning can be as much as 25 percent of the end product um yeah, I, I'll I'll agree with Pete on this point. We need a whole system revolution, um, pinning down just just to say that just the CEO's pay is out of line, or the builder shouldn't be able to sell at this value or something. It's a there's a lot. This is a very complex issue that's that's really hard to pinpoint. Well, you know, on the other side of that too, I don't work for people that don't have money. I work for the people that are making. You know, let's say they make a million dollars. Well, what are they doing with that? They're reinvesting that money in guys like me, providing jobs for me. So if you raise the minimum wage, uh, I think it's been demonstrated that you have less jobs, not more jobs. So um, you need to get real about some of these things. We appreciate you calling in, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. If anyone else is out there and wants to call in, we'd love to hear from you. 543-8830. Uh, We're going to step aside for just a quick commercial break, and we'll be back with more Mortgage Matters. Mortgage Matters with hosts Dan and Jason will be right back. Join the conversation by calling 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley & Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley & Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley & Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. This is Jason Grody with Central Coast Lending. Give yourself the best possible chance to buy your dream home with our 21-day close. We get you fully pre-approved before you find your house so you can write a shorter, easier offer and beat out the competition. It's time for you to be the offer that gets accepted. Call Central Coast Lending today. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543 Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending is an equal housing opportunity real estate broker. California Bureau of Real Estate number 018-39608. NMLS number 328 What a state of generosity, look what my agent got for me, just by switching to State Farm. A few hundred unexpected bucks, I couldn't ask for more, but now I've got to figure out what I should use it for. A new bike would be radical, but maybe something practical, like a pet baboon with one robotic arm. Get to a better state, State Farm. Switch to State Farm and you can save. To find out more in San Luis Obispo, call Agent Susan Rodriguez. 
For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or pattersonrealty.com. You're tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show. I remember when, I remember, I remember when I lost my mind. There was something so pleasant about that place. Even your emotions have an echo in so much space. All right, we're having a fun conversation here on Mortgage Matters. Had a couple great callers. We had someone else call in um, a little while back, a little different topic. They uh, asked a question um, to Jim. It says uh, they would like to know the ramifications of putting a home into a trust when the home has a mortgage. He was just wanting to know if there's any, any sort of negative things that could happen with that, I believe. Um, it's a pretty common thing that we see. A lot of people um, keep their real estate in a trust. Mm-hmm. It's a there's a tax issue there that they're trying to. I feel like the question, avoid. the what they're getting at at the heart of this question is that issue of are you going to upset your lender when you change the vesting on the property? You change who's the legal owner of record, um, and, and we hear the same thing from people where say um, a married couple buys a house, but only one person um, is on the loan and on the deed. And then what happens when they die? Does the other person get booted from the home? So it's kind of a similar Or get to thought. keep the loan. Yeah. I mean, I have a client right now. This is a real loan that I'm working on. A um, couple young dudes, like fresh out of college, they bought a couple houses together, like teamed up resources, bought a few houses. The recession happened and they kind of needed to part ways. They obviously weren't investing any more homes together. Um, So they had some properties that they split. It's like, you take one, I'll take one. Well, I was on the loan for the house you now own. So we signed over title. Now title's in Dan's name. The loan is not in Dan's name. The loan's in Jason's name and I'm not on title. If the lender catches wind of that, that comes along, I mean, there's actually a clause in the deed of trust that says that you will not transfer this title. And if you do, it's, it's you know, a violation and enacts the acceleration clause where I can call the loan due. That's what that particular rule is aimed towards is not to allow somebody that's not financially obligated to go you know, get their name, be the legal owner, be the legal owner, or even maybe in some cases share it. So, right. Cause if let's say, you know, central coast lending makes Jason a loan to buy a house. And so they qualify me. I buy his house, $400,000 house, and I have a $300,000 loan. And then they come days later and I've added Dan with me and they go, well, huh. But in the end, it's still Jason. That's fine. I'm still 
in their eyes, completely financially responsible for the property. Now I'm sharing this interest with you, maybe foolishly to some ownership. Um, so that's kind of how it works with the trust to some degree. So here's the answer specifically on the trust from a lender standpoint. If you, Dan Podesto owns a house and he's, um, borrows as such Dan Podesto, um, on title, gets a loan. That's how it is. Two days later, puts the property into the Podesto Family Trust. Um, is that a problem? It's really not. If I'm the lender and I catch wind of that, I might ask you to prove to me that you're like the uh, beneficiary of the trust. If it proves that it's your, it's some other Podesto that's on the trust and. The name was just a little bit deceptive, but I can't chase the end of that entity to you, the guy that I have this outstanding debt with. Um, that That's going to be problematic. So my answer simply is I, I don't believe there's any kind of an issue provided that you are the beneficiary of the trust and that the trust um, is acceptable to the lender. But here's the surefire thing to do. Um, because anybody can do this, by the way. You can go down tomorrow and file a quick claim deed where you go, I could take, you know, my wife and I are on title to our house and we're on the loan together. But tomorrow my wife and I could go quick claim the title to the, uh, you know, whatever, so-and-so off the street weirdo dude sign the thing and record it, the county will put it in weirdo dude's name and I'm still on the loan and the bank could take some issue with that. So um, what you might want to do is just call your servicer up and just say, hi, you know, this is Jason. I bought my house with a loan. Your company has the loan. Uh, I, I hold title right now this way. And this is what I want to do is put it into my trust. And, you know, yes, I'm the beneficiary of the trust and I will send you um, the, the trust review if you'd like. But I just want to get your blessing to make sure that I don't create any instance where I lose my loan. And I'll tell you why I think right now I'd be more careful than ever. If you have because um, banks are tricky, um, you know, just ask Pete. He'll tell you these banks will do conniving things. So what if you, the bank has your property, you have a 3% 30-year fix. They're not particularly thrilled about that. And they're just going, oh, this guy pays on time. He's a pretty good borrower. I kind of like him. Okay. And then, ah, oh, but it sure would be great if I could get him in today's 4% 30-year fix. So I make that 3% loan off the books. And then all of a sudden... You give them a reason, you change vesting, you do something where they could come back and go, ah, gotcha, bud. Well, you, now you got to get a new loan because you did this. Um, stuff like that could happen if you're not really careful, especially if you're doing something like you just add your brother and then you go off the title for one reason or another. You know, like I said, my borrower who made a deal and now isn't even on title, but is on the loan. The guy that's on title is not on the loan. They got some major clouds going on over there. That's problem. That's problematic. Yeah. So what happens when someone does put a home into a trust and they are the beneficiary of the trust and the lender's cool with that, but then they die and then there's a new beneficiary of the trust. Is there then a problem or the wife 
you know, whose husband dies and she's not on the loan? Or the, I mean, is that a great problem? question? And I recently heard. So for, right here, I'm going to say in this conversation, that's a question for an estate attorney to, to answer for you. Um, I recently was dealing with an estate attorney that told me that was fine. Hmm. That if you died and the person that inherited your property got legal vesting and the, that the loan has to carry on. Hmm. Um, again, I but heard that. But how do you get legal vesting if you haven't passed it by the lender? Um, just by, just by filling whatever out the, the attorneys. Yeah. And as long as it, it would stand up in court that the, hmm. the documents were filed and um, recorded correctly, that even though that deceased party that had a loan as an individual, it would flow on to their heirs. That's what I heard from an estate attorney. Interesting. And I, I got to say, I kind of went, really? But that's not my realm, nor do I have any real life experience with that having happened. So if you're in that spot or wondering about that, all I can say is you need to talk to your estate attorney. We've got a caller waiting online. It's Brian from San Luis. Welcome to the show, Brian. Yep. Yeah, thank you. I have a question about uh, property insurance, okay. and uh, I recently received a notice that a cancellation, or actually notice of non-renewal from my property insurer, that I am located in an ineligible brush area. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you had other ideas, other insurance ideas. Are you with State Farm? No. Just, I, uh, I'm a, am I supposed to say who I'm with? I was uh, Travelers. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, here's the deal. And we're seeing more and more of that around the county right now, especially, um, you know, as they go through and evaluate these, the catastrophic losses type of things. And if you have property that's like, you know, in a rural area, especially if you're next, you're on the upslope next to a Canyon, you know, there's, there's all these different ways now they can figure out who's got the, the greater exposure. Um, and some companies are just trimming back their appetite for that. So it's kind of, um, sadly, kind of a more common thing. Um, I'll tell you what my suggestion is, um, is to go to one of the insurance brokers in town. So instead of using like travelers who just have their product or State Farm or Farmers or whoever, then you can go to one of the brokers that actually have the ability to represent a dozen or more insurance companies and can market their products accordingly they're the ones that have you know and and whenever it comes up that we've got somebody in your position that's what we do is send them to an insurance broker that can find um, a fit for them one of the companies that does have the appetite to insure a property like yours okay well that's end of the question Thank all you. right thanks brian appreciate you calling in um, you looked at me funny. Am I not supposed to say the names <laughs> of companies like that? No. We just have a sponsor of the show in so State Farm. No, and State Farm's great. And you know what? <laughs> I mean, thank you. That's an opportunity. Um, you, Brian might want to call State Farm. These, there are different companies that are doing these things. And I, and I certainly don't mean to say that there's something better about uh, one company than another in this situation where you for one characteristic or another become hard to insure a broker is just going to save you 
the headache because, and you know, they're going to know, Cause you know, they work with multiple investors. Yeah. So you're going to get the answer. That's a sort of a, a broader swath of what's out there in the market rather than just what, like, for example, let's say that, you know, you're going to buy this house today. That's got, you know, this brush rating around it and you call travelers and travelers says, I'm sorry, that house is uninsurable. So you hang up the phone and you're like, shoot, maybe we should cancel this escrow. Um, versus you call into a company that does do that and hey you know what you know homeowners premium on average i'd say is like 600 bucks a year you're in an area like that working with a company that is willing to accept the additional risk of having you in a you know a higher fire risk area they might charge you 900 bucks a year or 1200 bucks a year i don't know but somebody out there will do it I mean, that, that's just kind of the beauty of there being options. Yeah. Yeah. Each company has different risk appetites. And, and so th the coverage is available. It's just a matter of how much you're going to pay for it. Um, so, yeah, I get your point. I hear you. Um, it is worth giving Susan Rodriguez a call. She she can do some some pretty good things. But, yeah, if they don't have an appetite, a broker's a good Well, and I'll tell you what. Well. I know this from firsthand experience. If you call Susan... And she can't insure you because of something like that, that they just don't have an appetite for or have decided upon an exclusionary policy. She knows who to refer you to. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, it's a great start. There were a couple of housing numbers that came out this week that I thought we should share. Um, one of them was the FHFA home price index house. They call it a house price index. Um, interesting number there it was up in january by a half a percent from the month prior and year over year is up six percent which was actually one of the better readings we've seen in the last couple of years um home prices of the appreciation has cooled off and i'm not saying that in a negative way because they're still appreciating they're just not appreciating as fast as they were in the couple of years prior um, when it was double digit percent that so, sounds like double speak man <laughs> so now <laughs> homes are only appreciating at a 6% clip year over year, according to this index. Uh, um, we also saw new home and existing home sales. Um, let's see here. New home sales were up. Up in the West by 2%. How much was it just overall? My notes say a hair above estimates. Yeah. 512 thousand is the answer so um 512,000 annually yeah yeah and um the median sales price shot up over six percent to three hundred and one thousand dollars um hey six percent again so we've got two home valuation models that that agree with each other i wanted to talk about this last week with pam on the show i actually left this in my notes because i never got to mention it um but Let's see here. Housing starts hit a nine-year high. That was a bright spot. I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> nine years of no building, it's not hard to exceed that. So it's great that we're at a high, especially if you stay at a high each month that you pull this uh, metric. Home builder sentiment hit a nine-month low. Hmm. Um, builders are saying that there's a shortage of decent lots and skilled labor 
and that they've only been able to drive top line by raising prices, not pushing volume. Hmm. And so, again, this kind of goes back to that conversation we're having earlier about affordable housing. Why is it getting more affordable or less affordable? Builders are now beginning to, to lose a little bit of confidence in the new homes market on account of the lots and the labor are getting hard to come by. They can't produce the volume to make the profits. And all they can rely on to stay profitable is increasing home prices. That's interesting. I kind of wanted Pam's take on that, but the conversation never really felt like um, there was a good spot for me to say, eh, tell me about this. I mean, obviously, um, it, it's no surprise. We've been dealing with uh, a limited supply of good land, suitable land, buildable land, affordable land in Slow County for quite a while. So that's obviously not something new here. Um, but this sentiment is, this is a national sentiment, which I thought was kind of telling. Yeah. In fact, you see it when, whenever a new project is being proposed, like for instance, the Delidio Ranch property, which is the one out there between, it's kind of off the, off the highway between the Los Osos Valley Road and the Madonna shopping center area. There's that patch of agricultural land, you know people come up and are like hey wait we love our green space here we love our agricultural land here i um, saw i saw a proposal for that by the way yeah did you i've, I've seen a couple of renderings yeah but that's the kind of issue when they talk about there's there's not these readily available buildable pieces of dirt you know the, the stuff that seems like it might make sense is you know there's a lot of opposition to it um, there's support too. It kind of depends on which side you're on, but it's not easy. It doesn't street, you know, it doesn't sail through planning and, and just, it's not an easy process, which means it's not a cheap process either. And so that adds to cost. Yeah. Um, there was one other number I wanted to share existing home sales. Surprisingly were down over 7% in February. That's a pretty, um, pretty big drop. Granted, the lowest a, <laughs> level. Yeah, it's just a. It looks like it's just a month over month drop, but it's it's kind of surprising. It's a one year low, and um, the big factor that is holding down sales um, appears to be just lack of available homes on the market. Well, yeah, and it's one of those things too where you know we we talk about this a lot, but it it's kind of a. Um, a problem where it's hard to see the beginning, hard to see the end, hard to see the solution. Um, would you sell your home and be one of the existing home sales numbers? We need you now. Um, and what does it mean to sell your home today? Can you find a suitable replacement? Are you confident in that? And in many cases right now, people are just happy staying put. Their properties gained equity again. They've got a Prop 13 tax base, if you're in California anyway. You um, probably, if you could, you refinance during this last downturn into a pretty awesome rate that's typically less than what you can get today. So you're one of the problem. You're just you're staying put. There's not there's not a lower rate out there. Um, and by the way. Haven't rates, I mean, pull up the chart. Haven't rates kind of declined since the 80s? My alone in my thinking there? 70s? Yeah, 80s? Yeah. 
But forever, it's though, been a so for a couple generations of home buyers, there was always this opportunity to move up. Buy a house, you make your down, gain some appreciation. As you progress through your career, typically you start making more money. Interest rates are declining. So you kind of parlay this into buying another house at a lower rate and a better payment and building some wealth and playing the whole game. Well, today, if you this new generation that just bought your first home four years ago, uh, rates are only going to go up. Existing inventory is pretty minimal. Like I said, you got Prop 13, you got a good low interest rate. There's a reason to stay here. So you're, you just don't have that freedom to move around. Those home sales aren't there. It puts extra burden on new home building. And if that hasn't been strained enough, if you can't recognize how strained that is and why that's so expensive, um, you know, I, I can't help you. It's, a, it's kind of the perfect storm. And earlier in the show, you know, I kind of started sharing that sentiment with you a little bit about, oh, there's probably going to be some corrections. And then, yeah, you know, probably going to go down a little or maybe even stay stagnant. When we start having this conversation about that supply and demand issue, I don't even see stagnant as possible. I'm really nervous and concerned about what's going to go on over the next five years with these home values and as long as people keep showing up to pay more and be the winning bid to buy the home that's available in the neighborhood um it just it'll keep perpetuating and obviously the people here can afford it yeah but they we're keep not selling they yeah. keep selling for more yeah but Which, we're not seeing people lining up and overbidding prices like we were I have a guy right now, and granted, this is in San Luis Obispo, um, but I have a guy that we have written an offer on eight houses in the last two weeks. Wow. And getting beat out 100% of the time so far by all cash people over asking price with no appraisal contingency. Slow is a very That's impacted market. With. It's a very the city of San Luis Obispo is very impacted. It's it is a little different. There's not a lot of homes for sale in Slow. Yeah. And it's it is competitive. There's the whole rental aspect. Well, and of it's homes upsetting when yeah. you're when you're in that mix and you're trying to buy. I mean, it's, it's an upsetting thing. There's not a lot of great options, and the options that are there have some competition. Yeah. You don't have a lot of time to go sleep on it. I mean, you know this. It, you see it every day. It's a, it's a tricky thing. Um, it's a great opportunity, by the way, to talk about the 21-day close program that we have advertised on our website. Um, there's been a lot of noise in the last, oh gosh, six months now about this Dodd-Frank, the final piece was this TRID uh, piece of legislator. The noise has said that it extends, causes closing delays, causes all these problems, yada, yada, yada. I want to tell you guys that that's, um, when you're working with us at Central Coast Lending, that's just not true. We are not experiencing those problems and delays. We've not been having uh, those issues. 
we are able to offer somebody a 21 day close and and here's basically how it works you come in bring us all your documentation we do a loan application we go through the formal underwriting process getting you fully cleared for all those questions about um, character credit ability to repay putting the issue uh, any of the issues to rest in terms of um, assets or income debt to income ratio everything on the borrower side of it uh, is fully vetted and signed off leaving only uh, the need to get a title report and an appraisal um, you know in some cases a condo or something like that there's a few other pieces that are required but point being the collateral side anything to do with the specific property once you identify the property that's the final piece of the puzzle and because we're addressing only that one issue you can get done in a shorter term uh, and have a bit more confidence so uh, it's it's a process that we're offering to our borrowers to be more competitive uh, in an effort to compete with those cash buyers. Hard to compete with no appraisal contingency though. Um, so anyway, we're working to help make your chances of buying um, a bit more successful. If you wanna get going on that approval, uh, reach out to us, we're at centralcoastlending.com. You can give us a call if you wanna talk about it first. The number is 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. You've heard that jingle a million times. I know. I'm sorry. Just a few. <laughs> Do you sing it in your sleep? We actually sing it in the hallway out here. That's brilliant. Yeah. Thanks much for being with us today. Hope you guys all have a, a great weekend. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Get out there and do those egg hunts, whatever you're going to do. We'll be back next week with another live episode of Mortgage Matters. Thanks for being with us.